Welcome to the EMS Handout, your source for all things EMS. And now, let's welcome to the show your hosts, Bradley Dean, Eric McCullough, and David Blevins. Hello, and welcome to the EMS Handout Podcast. This is David, along with my co-host, Eric McCullough and Bradley Dean. We are your source for all things EMS. So we're coming together tonight, a little bit of hiatus. Uh, over the last uh, week and a half of uh, schedules, uh, just, just you know, sometimes the best laid plans, and I'm taking credit on this one because I have been all over the place in the last little bit. So we did finally get the band back together and uh, coming on with the next episode. So before we get started, we got to do the adulting thing, right? So how's the weather, Eric? Oh, my weather's great. Yeah, I, have a, I do have a problem, though. Um, oh, the, the, this time change. I think we should all blame it on the time change. Like I was telling Bradley before I got on, I was like, I was literally just laying there and I just was out because it's been dark for like, I don't know, six hours, it feels like. Um, so that has been like, we need to get away. We need to get away from this daylight saving. So funny story. And I'm actually trying to pull it up right now, but uh, uh, I saw something about legislation being introduced for daylight savings time. Oh, that would be uh, amazing. Federal, federal legislation and say uh, we're trying to change. You know, it's kind of funny because there's a few states uh, that actually don't recognize it already. So let alone anything else. And then um, the reference that I saw, somebody actually did a study and it, it does affect individuals more than just uh, the time itself. So, uh, it's quite interesting. Um, let's see. I think some of this is local, but uh, you know, you never know. So, uh, but yeah, well, did, it's, you, did you catch up on that extra hour of sleep, or no? I have. I just can't. I can't figure out my the like. And I know Bradley's over there because he's been working. And I don't get me wrong. I've worked a few shifts, but I haven't worked like he's worked. But uh, like the kids are waking up at five o'clock in the morning, which is a yep. real bummer. And they're and they're out by like seven thirty, eight o'clock. They're just like barely keeping their eyes open. I look over my my seven year old boy like puts himself to sleep. So um, it's just throwing everybody off. I, I wish all the politicians could just come together for this one thing. I think we all want it is just to get rid of the, the daylight savings time. Well, you know, it's funny last week, you know, driving to work, uh, and it's still dark outside and then driving this week and it's bright as can be, you know, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. but then, but then you turn around and it's like driving home last week there was sun and this week there's not, you know, or vice versa. I, you know, shoot, I don't even know anymore. So, <laughs> Bradley Dean, you are uh, you are over there working today. So, uh, how's uh, how's life treating you over in North Carolina? Well, I mean, life's great. I mean, yes, I've I've been working, but uh, so I took a little bit of time to, to do some some research uh, during our little hiatus here, and I always wondered why do we always talk about the weather? So I did a little bit of research, and you know whether it's with you guys or somebody else. Anytime you go in somewhere, people talk about the weather because it's kind of a code that we've uh, 
that's helped us evolve to get over some social inhibitions and just start conversations. Uh, so I, I thought I'd do a little bit of research to find out why we always do that. Well, nice. you know, I, I started doing it now mainly because Eric, you know, <laughs> I was complaining about it. So, you know, all we do is talk about the weather. It's like, yeah, yeah it's true. Uh, well, so it's, it's like a bunch of old guys at Cracker Barrel or, or Waffle House or something. If you, well, I'm from Middle Tennessee. I don't know if you guys got all that where, where you're from, Bradley. Oh, well, my goodness. Yeah. So are you really think, thinking that we don't have <laughs> Cracker Barrel? In the I know that you're Cracker Barrel. Yeah. I, I, mean, I do know that once you. Everywhere. I do know that once you go west of the Mississippi, you cannot get grits at uh, Cracker Barrel unless you ask for them specifically. Yeah, really? I don't like I want them if they don't readily have them available to you. Because yeah. it feels like it would be like bitter grits. Like, oh, God, I got to give this dude some grits. <laughs> we have completely thrown this one way off. But uh, so... Let's go ahead and gather ourselves back together. And before we get on to this week's topic, we want to thank our podcast sponsor, the Journal of Emergency Medical Services. Jim's has been a great partner to the EMS Handoff Podcast since we have come back. And uh, we join a great cast of podcasters on their EMS Today podcast. Make sure to go by gyms.com. Uh, take a look at all of their industry-leading uh, news they're talking about uh, and staying on top of a lot of different uh, issues that are affecting EMS these days. You can also check out all of our previous episodes as well as our uh, fellow podcasters. And you all know what? This is interesting. We have now been over one year back together. Uh, so quite uh, quite a long year. It's uh, been fun. We've had tons of growth in this podcast. So uh, make sure and go by, subscribe, rate, and review on all of their platforms. We also want to give a shout out to our merchandise uh, apparel line from the Pursuit Company. The Pursuit Company partnered with us to provide our clothing and our merchandise line. You can go by thepursuitco.com and get the EMS handoff line from the Black Subdue that I got on tonight to our Keep Back podcast line. And they also go to support Love 147 to help end human trafficking. So make sure to go by the Pursuit Co. and pick up some of your own EMS handoff merchandise. Bradley Dean, been a topic in the media for the last little bit, uh, especially when it's affecting EMS. So let's go ahead and kick off this conversation and uh, see where it takes us. Well, in the media, a couple of weeks ago, um, I was reading where first responders uh, have now been charged because they gave ketamine to somebody. So a widow uh, is suing a South Carolina County for EMS providers for negligence uh, because uh, she says that the EMS workers actions when administering ketamine to her husband amounted to an unlawful, unjustified and unreasonable use of force. Now this, this case comes right on the heels of one in Colorado uh, along with lots of things um, with, with ketamine. So if you have fast forwarded through the first 10 minutes uh, of us talking about the weather to get to ketamine, this has become a, a, a pretty hot topic. And I, I'm going to sum everything up at the beginning, but we're going to continue talking about it is ketamine is a great drug and a great medication to be used on patients. 
if given by the right provider to the right patient at the right time, you know, all the things that we talk about, the problem is, is we tend to select it poorly because we have a solution looking for a problem. And I think, I think you, you kind of hit the nail right on the head, and, you know, this really relatively short episode, except for our conversation about the weather. Um, <laughs> in, the, in the fact that, you know, if we take a look at our advanced life support skills, we have a lot of tools. And we've talked about it uh, on this podcast as well as uh, when we were still doing the tidbits before. You know, even even airway management techniques such as innovation, you know, things that we use at the wrong point in time or use them properly are going to end up creating a significant issue. And if we're not prepared for those, then the outcome is somebody's life. And I think that's what we're seeing here with the ketamine as well. But, you know, what's, what I find funny is, I, I, let me, Craig, that's not a really good way to say it. What I find interesting is that when we're looking at a lot of these cases, it's not going to be being used for pain management. It's going to be being used in some sort of chemical sedation. And I think that's where we we get into that. So when we talk about ketamine for pain management, um, you know, it's there and, and we utilize it. It's, it's only really when we turn the page and use it for chemical sedation. Yeah. And if you look at some of the research, um, most of the problem comes when it's used for, for chemical sedation, but there are some very tight parameters that we probably should really be looking at when we use it for chemical sedation for the patients who are really extremely agitated. And I would say agitated delirium or excited delirium, are the cases that we really need to be using it in. Not because a patient is, um, or an individual is uncooperative or uh, demonstrating behavior that is, is out of the norm, because if they you know, have ingested alcohol or other intoxicants that are not um, uppers like cocaine, then all we're doing is we're adding to the, the other pharmacology they've already got on board that's causing more sedation and causing the issues that we're, that we're seeing. So I think uh, part of the conversation that we need to expand before we go too deep in here, let's, let's first talk about excited delirium and the need for the behavioral side uh, as far as chemical sedation. So let's talk about those patients quickly and then, then we'll transfer back to the volume. So what are you seeing with these patients and what is excited delirium and why is ketamine the drug of choice when we, when we're looking at those patients? Well, and when you look at excited delirium um, or agitated delirium, these patients are hyper agitated and they have strength, you know, beyond that of what normal you know, humans would have. They are hyperdynamic, hyperthermic, um, and if they are not, you know, sweating, even if it's, you know, freezing cold outside, it's probably not something that we need to treat with, uh, with, with ketamine. We have other things such as benzos and Haldol. Uh, so excited delirium itself is fatal and we've got to do something to stop that patient from going further down that, uh, 
that path of rhabdomyolysis to, you know, where they're going to actually have cellular destruction because they're hyperthermic. And if we're going to treat a patient for excited delirium with ketamine, they should, you know, follow that up with monitoring the airway. They should follow it up with uh, IV fluids because we've got to get those patients cooled off and rehydrated. So I, th I think you make a very valid point there that we have, you know, with every medication, you know, so we have our generalized dosing uh, for that. And we kind of go for that minimum, maximum uh, dosing. But we want a response to that medication. Um, and so as we give, we have to be prepared for everything because ketamine, you know, can cause respiratory arrest, de respiratory depression or arrest, uh, depending on how much you're going to administer. Um, and then uh, obviously beyond that, without quick correction, we end up in cardiac arrest. So in this case, we're administering a little, maybe a little bit too much, or the patient just has a reaction to the medication. And so we have to go basically in our checklist to say, okay, this is beyond what we wanted. How do I reverse? How do I manage? You know, because before I get into some of the reversal agents, I need to take and manage that airway appropriately. I need to take and manage the circulation appropriately. Right. Yeah, I mean, um, there are lots of things that we have to do, you know, with these with these patients. And the first thing is, is we need to point everything back to recognizing the condition before we even get all the way into, you know, a lot of the treatment. Um, there was an article that was put out. I can't remember the exact date, but I want to say it was somewhere around 2011. Um, Dr. Wesley put out an article. I think it was on gyms and, you know, he goes through the whole thing of excited delirium. And I, I really think that they need to reprint the article and, and put it in there because he goes through all the pathophysiology and the treatment of it. But the problem is, is most people probably have not looked at it or, or paid attention to it. So let's go to the opposite side. And I just so, okay, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, I actually, I just found it because it finally just popped up. Uh, yeah, it was right. 2011. So I, I did find it. Okay. Well, we'll include that in the show notes as well. So let, let's kind of, let's kind of go to the other side. So, you know, as you were doing the research uh, for this episode and kind of talking about some of the different uh, uh, cases that we saw here, uh, you know, there's, there's many different cases recently in the media um, going back to this one in South Carolina from 2019 um, the cases in Colorado and stuff like that. So one of the things that we do have to take a look at in our care is that, you know, we need to have the tools that are available. And what we're seeing, especially in Colorado, is now that that case uh, has been or going through the system and seeing the adverse actions, we're seeing the pendulum swing to the opposite side and several uh, localities and even the state looking to ban ketamine use and pre-hospital care altogether. And 
that pendulum may, uh, as you mentioned earlier, ketamine is an excellent pharmacologic intervention for uh, pre-hospital use. And when used appropriately, does an extremely good job. So how do we, obviously, in treating our patients, we want to make sure and do the best. But, uh, you know, to me, this is an education or advocacy issue. Said, yeah, we have a bad situation. We need to recognize and see that, you know, that bad situation did occur and we want to use it appropriately. So please don't take this medication away from us, right? Right. I mean, to me, if you turn around and take, you know, ketamine away from EMS providers, that is no different than turning around and having a, a police-involved shooting with a with an individual that posed a threat that as it goes through and is adjudicated, that law, you know, taking firearms away from law enforcement officers. You know, if an officer does something wrong, we, we need to take care of that particular problem. But we don't need to take it away from, we don't need to take firearms away from every police officer. Yeah, I mean, I think I've listened to enough um, like military podcasts and like Jocko podcasts and stuff where that exact thing is the philosophy is, um, oh, well, this one person did something bad with it. Therefore, everyone must be punished or we need to scrutinize and analyze what, what you're describing, David, to me is more of a training uh, problem, too. Because, I mean, like, uh, like, you were, like you were saying before we started this, like, they give us these nice tools and stuff. And, yeah, you go through one little in-service on, like, um, on like a thumper, a new defibrillator, things like that. Um, but if they put a new medication on board, they basically just insert a new piece of paper in with your protocols and be like, okay, that's your new drug now. Um, granted, as a professional provider, we should all be going through that to make sure that um, we know what to use it for and why to use it. But we also need to be going through competencies to establish it because ketamine is not like any other drug that we give. Most of the other drugs, I think we could all argue this, is most of the other drugs in the ambulance is largely innocuous in the sense of like, okay, so you're going to give some Zofran to somebody, give some albuterol. Uh, most of the dr drugs in our drug kit are not going to be so overwhelmingly detrimental and have such side effects, it leads to negative patient outcomes. This is one medication where if we get the decision incorrect and we get the dosing incorrect, because you're looking at what I call a, a halo event, a high acuity, low occurrence event, excited delirium, agitated delirium. These are not events that you're going to see all the time. So the one time that you do see it, if you have not been training yourself properly, not educating yourself properly, you're going to have a tendency of either underdosing them or overdosing them. Um, and that's why I like, I personally have not really used a lot of ketamine, even though we've had access to it. I've just, I've never been in a situation where I was like, I, I need ketamine for this guy. I've, I've been able to thankfully use other um, strategies. Um, or other strategies besides ketamine. So I, I thought I, I saw it more as a training problem um, when it came to that than it is anything else. And instead of scrutinizing the training and the competency behind it, they're just like, no, 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 just just get rid of ketamine. It must be it must be a bad thing, even though they never looked at any other data. I mean, it's yeah. interesting when you take a uh, when you take a look at uh, ketamine use, and you you're working at the military. You know, ketamine lollipops are readily given. You know, you got somebody in pain, hand this thing over, and no matter how quickly they suck on the lollipop, you know, they never really overdose on that. So 
you know, it's like, here, have another one. You know, you're in a little bit of pain, keep going. Uh, so, you know, we, we have seen that in the pre-hospital setting, it can definitely be used very effectively. And again, when it comes down to something like that, obviously the lollipops are, are, are more of a controlled release because of uh, what it's actually saturated in. But, um, you know, that that is where it exists. And as we were talking about before we got started, you know, when, when we take a look at this, it's kind of one of those things when something is new that is out there, um, the the incidence of it being utilized increases dramatically. So, you know, my reference was with RSI, you know, a new service starts with RSI and all of a sudden they have 32 patients in a uh, reporting period that have been RSI when previously or historically they've done like 32 innovations in a year. Um, and we, we see that grow because it's something new, it's something cool. Um, and with ketamine, you know, it's definitely something that's there. And with the dissociative properties, there's a lot of stuff that we have the capability to do with it. But they, the problem is, is when and how, because again, in, in the conversation we're having right now, we're talking more specifically to those in the excited delirium or, you know, the, the need for chemical station versus that pain management. So the idea is, hey, I've got this person, as Bradley was mentioning, it's hyperthermic, uh, hyperagitated, has superhuman strength. And so it's like, hey, I need to give a lot. And because of the emotions in that environment, you're not prepared if it goes too far. It, you made a, a good point there. Um, sometimes we get sucked in emotionally because either we're involved with, you know, the patient fighting against us, or now we see law enforcement fighting with the individual. And it's not the case. The individual is probably just uncooperative and, you know, for whatever reason, but let's, let's go back to the other part of this of, you know, should it be taken away from everybody? So we've got these cases, the cases in Colorado, the cases in South Carolina, uh, as well as some others. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say this. I am not a lawyer, but we need to look at, uh, you know, some, some things. And I made a few notes that, you know, based on what's happening here is they're trying to criminalize acts of, you know, what they're claiming is medical malpractice and make, you know, or making a deviation from EMS protocols. So first of all, even if it's true that they, you know, failed to make incorrect determination of excited delirium in, in, in the cases that we're looking at, it would be really difficult for the prosecution to prove that their failure rose to the level of intent or culpability or even criminal negligence because there are three general things that we've got to look at. So negligence is basic medical malpractice, um, which is an unintentional act. You know, so if they were negligent, as claimed in the case from this widow, that's an unintentional act. So then they have to prove gross negligence. So there's lots of things there that have to be proven for gross negligence. And, and with that, you know, that's a civil matter. It's going to be really hard to criminalize that. Then you have to look at intent. You know, in, intent is, is the top end of the continuum when we look at this that requires proof that the, the defendant or the paramedics in these cases willfully and purposefully committed an act in violation of a law. I can assure you that no paramedic woke up that morning in any of these cases and said, 
I'm going to go out here today and I'm going to give ketamine and screw somebody's day up. Yeah, that, so we've, we've got to look at this and I know we live in such a litigious society. Don't be afraid to, to take care of patients because of these lawsuits. At the same time, administrators have to look at something, which we'll talk about. We'll come back to the training piece of it in just a minute. But in these cases, the prosecution is trying to, to break new ground by criminalizing these cases. And, and what we've seen is we've seen a cascading effect with this because of what happened in Colorado, what's happened in South Carolina, what's happened in other places. And, you know, it's a great medication for, for the intended purpose. Well, and I think there's also a conversation piece here uh, simply discussing how we discuss ketamine being administered. So, I, you know, a, a uh, situation uh, relatively close in which a law enforcement officer, I, I actually got a phone call and, and I'm not a big individual to, to take uh, expert cases, um, but uh, the, the individual started going through the conversation that was going on. And ultimately, the law enforcement officer told paramedic that I need you to put them under. And like there was no medical need. There was just back talking ultimately. And so they put them in. Uh, they used ketamine and, and put them under. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, how we get to that point. And again, if you kind of take a, a look at the, the South Carolina case, it makes mention that, you know, there was little to no assessment of the patient. They administered the medication at the maximum dose. And again, without that assessment and went into it. And, you know, it's, and, and it's something that I hear quite frequently from providers as well. They talk about sending them down the K hole and, you know, it's one of those things in your, even here, some of the research materials that talk about that. And again, that's that dissociative property that ketamine does have. And, um, you know, it's colloquially called that, but if we're using that in and around patients, patients, families, that kind of exacerbates their concern whenever something adverse does happen. Yeah, I think like when you, when you're looking at the yeah, I get that everybody's litigious, um, and we should absolutely be cognizant of that. But when you do have the way that we discuss it in amongst ourselves, and the way that we're, we're kind of flippant about it. Um, especially a medication that we don't use that often. So, I mean, I mean, statistically, it's just not there. We just don't, um, I mean, it'd be one thing if like, um, we were a little bit more nuanced in medications that we give all the time, breathing treatments, um, uh, maybe even antiarrhythmics or things like that. And I mean, when you talk about medics discussing, you know, putting patients into K-holes and stuff, I think it's more like, a, um, and, and I might be wrong and I might get, um, flog for this on, on social media and that's fine. But like when we chest beat about, uh, oh yeah, I put that patient in, in K holes and I, or, you know, we just gave him some ketamine and stuff. It's like, man, 
you know, physicians, when they make these decisions in the clinical environment, it's because they've had residencies. It's because they've been through plenty of years where they've had at least a chief resident. They've had controlled, um, they have controlled opportunities for years to develop a knack for um, practicing medicine. And a lot of times, since we do not get that, we've already established most of the time we get, hey, there's a new drug, here's the concentration, go through this online module, here's the piece of paper, uh, sign it, make sure you get through the module, and then, yeah, this is what we're gonna do from here on out. And that's fine, but I mean, it still can breed some really inconsistency, especially if, you know, we do have this like weird gray area, because now we're not just talking about medicine, now we're talking about constitutional rights like putting someone under, man, that's a, that's a strong verbiage for somebody. It's like, you better have a very good reason because that kind of goes back to the all excited delirium, agitated delirium state. We have to be really good about recognizing it. And I'll be honest, I don't know how well I could, I mean, I could obviously recognize somebody that is being harmful to themselves and just being ridiculous, but I don't know at what point we decide we are ready to, to use ketamine instead of it just like, being the automatic, like, oh, nope, if I had a blow dart gun, I would use ketamine in, in that sucker, you know? <laughs> so I'm just saying, like, I think we got to be really careful, like you said, around the verbiage, our attitudes around it, because if we become a little bit too blase about it, then um, this is what creates error and ultimately makes it not look like we're professional about our business. Well, I, I think... one of the points that you make there is uh, got to be key in the fact that there are individuals with excited delirium or agitated delirium that are still lucid and they have the ability to answer all of your questions and make decisions. And so, you know, we've got to present in that case, the need that we have to make the decisions on the patient's behalf. And in this instance, you know, you know, based on, now, granted, the the case that we're looking at here in South Carolina, you know, it's from the being written from the point of view of of the family. Um, but in here, you know, the individual is asking to talk to somebody, uh, and you know, so there's conversation about rational thought being there. And so, for us making a medical decision that the patient doesn't agree with, we're technically doing so without consent and. Again, going to Bradley's point, we're not lawyers. We don't have Wes with us here tonight or Doug. So uh, we, you know, so we don't have any of any of that. But once we start to make that consent decision on our own, um, and and we don't have a legal right to do so, then ultimately there's concern of assault and battery. Yeah, I really don't think that the legal argument and the legal. Um, um, discussion really comes up enough in our training. Like every single time we do some type of training piece, we need to discuss, even if it's for a brief five minute, two minute component, the legal implications of it, either the state law or the federal law or something that protects the patient. Because I mean, ultimately if Wes were here, he would say it depends because he always says it depends. Um, Cause yeah. it's not black and white. And that's the problem. Um, like you said, we have to draw up really good. So our documentation has to be on point. Our assessment skills have to be on point. 
Um, and our knowledge about the legal implications of this has to be on point because we can't be violating people's constitutional rights. And I'm sorry, but everybody does deserve the right to know what drug they're getting. Again, kind of the blase attitude um, or the passive attitude of going into, oh, I just, you know, give them a drug without really educating on them. Sometimes we don't have the opportunity to do that. I completely get it. But you're right. If they are completely aware and oriented and cognitive and they are functioning well enough, they deserve the right to know what you're giving them and why they're and why they're getting it. Now, of course, if you have your if they're truly in the excited delirium and they're not really with it, then yeah, that that's a that's a completely separate discussion. But yeah, we do need to have more of those discussions where the legal implications are part of the training and not just like separate and like, oh yeah, and by the way, that's important. Not that not as important. <laughs> yeah. So I want, I wanted to run some numbers and, and that's what I was sitting here doing. If so you so you were talking about uh, physicians and going through residency and having the 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 knowledge and the background to pull from because of, of their environment versus EMS. So if you take a physician, emergency medicine physician, that's just out of residency. So let's look at this. So for four years, he's been in an ED. We're going to say that there is a minimum of 180 shifts a year for him. He's going to see roughly 20 patients a day. That's over 14,000 patients before they're out on their own and still have others that they can probably turn to. If you take a paramedic student that works 180 shifts, which they don't have to do, by the way, that sees eight patients a day, that's 1,400 patients before they're out on their own. There is a huge disparity between the two. And I really don't think that, you know, that paramedic that is cut loose and put out on their own that has that 1,400 patient background would have had the chance or the opportunity to find or see an excited delirium patient. So we've got to spend more time in training and doing that. Or when we take a medication and we put it on a truck, we can't say, hey, here's a memo. Here's what it does. Here's who you use it on. Put it on the truck and be done with it. So that's actually, you started to get to where I was going next, because uh, as we were talking about earlier, this is a training component. So, you know, as we, as we look at this, what is the minimum requirement? So, okay. So Bradley, uh, I'm assuming your all service has ketamine. We do. Uh, How long has that, how long has that been around for you all? So we have had ketamine for the last, I can look back, but I want to say the last four years. Okay. Um, so let, let's do this. Uh, Brett, uh, uh, Eric decides to go out and start an ambulance service. He starts the ambulance service. It's out. They've got multiple trucks on the road. Uh, ALS service, and he's, he's operating in McCullerville. Um, and... His medical director is proactive and says, hey, let's do ketamine. Ketamine's great. Uh, we can utilize it for pain management. We can use it for sedation. We can use it part of our RSI protocol. We, we, we can, you can do it all. I've written the pro- protocols. It's approved by the state. We're good to go. What is the minimum training requirement to make that a reality? 
Well, I mean, I, I would say that that varies. So when we did it, um, I can tell you we did roughly a two and a half to three hour review session uh, that involved conditions that it should be used with, reviewing those conditions, the dosage and medication with that. We then did some hands-on review and training for the drug-assisted innovation. And at the same time, the hands-on also talked about excited delirium and who should and shouldn't get it at that point. And we still had trouble with it. So and that's what I'm saying is, is you're basically making a day out of an eight-hour training day plus a little bit. And then, so even in your crunching of numbers, you know, yes, we have the background of understanding pharmacokinetics and dynamics and how different medications work. But, you know, when we really take a look at ketamine specifically, you know, it's kind of like when we talk about succinylcholine or rock or VEC or, you know, some of the other medications, you know, it's not that we just need to know that we can use it and that its dose is, you know, whatever we're going to say, you know, 0.01 milligrams per kilogram or whatever our dosing is for a specific medication. It's that we got to know what it acts on, how it acts on, and if something happens, how to get out of however it is acting on. Yeah, I mean, that, I think it's really important that we that we we do that. And there are some some key things that administrators need to look at, uh, as well as medical directors. And one, you got to look at your agitated patient uh, protocol review. You know, there's a difference between that agitated patient and the uncooperative patient, which we, we've talked about. Um, we often experience patients that are having behavioral emergencies. Just because it's a behavioral emergency does not equate the use of ketamine. Uh, and I, I think that's part of the problem we run into. So just because it's a behavioral emergency does not equate to the use of ketamine. So there, there are benzos, there are butrophenes that we can use for, for those patients. Um, the, the second thing that we've got to look at is we've got to train all personnel, not just the paramedics and the personnel that are going to be delivering that medication. Uh, if you've got BLS providers that work in, in a system that provides ALS, you know, while they can't necessarily administer those medications, they should be aware of where those medications are and what those medications do um, because they are going to be part of the treatment plan, just like in a hospital, you know. CNAs or respiratory therapists are not going to be uh, taking care and doing certain things, but they've got to be familiar with what the nurse or what the physician is going to be doing. So train all of your personnel in that. So look at, you know, the patient assessment so they can formulate a treatment plan. What's their thought process in doing that? Uh, make sure your, your personnel know the ketamine indications, dose calculations, uh, administration routes. And, and, and when I say dose calculations, I, in the past, I've always been, you know, in favor of, you know, having cards or, or, or figuring those. And see, Eric's holding his up. He's got his ketamine card right there. Um, or, you know, if we look at it, standard dosing ranges, you know, if, if it's you that's having that you know, excited delirium, I'm going to pop you with 400 milligrams of ketamine. You know, I'm not going to sit here and calculate um, your weight. 
if you go back to what they want to do in Colorado, they've got to have an accurate weight for the for the patient before they give it. If you're fighting in an excited delirium, yeah. I can't pick you up and put you on a set of scales. I don't carry those on the ambulance. No. In fact, my like my little my it's hard to see this, obviously, but like mine, because I'm not used to giving ketamine and at two o'clock in the morning, you don't want me, you know, carnival barking your weight. Um, so what I did, I literally drew the syringe, the actual, so I know what syringe I need to pick up. I even have like estimated weights on the side. And then I even have where kind of like based on the weight where I draw up on that syringe based on these parameters and these doses. It's a good task offloader for me because I don't give this drug that often and I can't trust myself with this drug and I can't trust myself with the protocols. Um, literally, if anybody wants to do this, by the way, it's literally just shipping tape, note cards, and a free carabiner from the college I used to work at. I mean, I have a bunch of stuff on here. Um, well, but, yeah. Well, you know, and I even want to go a little bit further on what Bradley said there. You know, not only is ketamine an option, benzos are an option, alparadol is an option. How about stepping back and de-escalating with therapeutic communications first? You know, we have all these tools, but sometimes our best tools are not the ones that act on the body. It's just that ability to have a conversation with somebody and de-escalate that situation. Uh, you know, again, you know, I keep going back to the South Carolina case, but, you know, one of the very last things was seeking damages and restraining the use of ketamine for law enforcement purposes. This had nothing to do, you know, there, there's a conversation here that had nothing to do with a medical situation. Now, obviously, we don't have all the facts, so we can't go all the way there. But if there's that question, you know, we have to do that assessment. How do we do that assessment? They're in handcuffs. There's a situation. Let's talk. I mean, obviously, there, there's an issue. Um, and first, have that conversation now. Then we get into they're altered and can't make their own decision. And how are we going to get them to a point that we can provide the care that they need? Like you said, if it's true agitated delirium and they're dehydrated because of their hypothermic, and then it is a potential life threat. We need to take care of that. So, but even before that, back up on the conversation. Just have a conversation and and say, hey, calm down. We need to help, and nothing happens. But then go through and pick the appropriate tool based on your training and put it to use. Now, utilize because ketamine is not used four or five, six times a day on your ambulance. If it is, chances are you're probably not administering it correctly. Um, or you just live in a really bad area. And um, But, uh, you know, make sure you know what you're doing. Put the dumb sheets out there. Uh, I, I was one that, you know, on the fire side, we didn't carry a lot of controls. And so when I did get on the ambulance, if I was bringing out the narc box and before I opened up and unlocked that narc box, my protocol manual was open and I saw what I needed to administer. See, and I like usually that. if I had somebody else with me, they calculated with me. Yeah, that's, I think that's like, that's the ideal thing. Um, you know, I'm teach mostly in the clinical environment now. So very rarely are decisions made in a vacuum. And I think what, what I guess if you had to put in like what what 
kind of sucks about being a paramedic is a lot of times we are on our own. And if we're with an EMT or an AMT, they may not understand the, the math and pharmacology and stuff. But if you can make it sound like a cockpit in the back of the ambulance where there is some accountability to what you're doing, like, yeah, I know you don't know how to do give this drug or uh, or whatever, but I want you to know this is what this drug does. I need you to make sure that I'm accountable to doing this. Like, I'm saying 0.7 milliliters, and they, you ought to have them look at it and verify that 0.7 milliliters or just something simple. It takes a few seconds, but that little simple check is something you can document and ensures you're accountable. So that helps legally too. Well, you go into the hospital and you have two, you have two providers checking off on every medication that you're administering. Or I should say most hospitals, you have two parts, especially once we get into the pain medications or any of the controls. But even in that case, to assess for uh, allergies, you know, look at the chart, there, there are two people verifying the medication. And that's something that we can simply do. It's like, hey, this is what I'm calculating. Uh, do you agree? You know, these individuals are trained. And there's no reason as a, as a provider that we don't say, hey, you know this dosing. Uh, you know, a lot of them have, have gone and, you know, utilize your resources and, and that just re, reinforces the training that you have. So, yeah. And you mentioned, you know, question ourselves. I mean, there are three principles of a professional caregiver. You know, the first one is, you know, we have a duty to question ourselves, you know, make sure we're doing the right thing. Uh, two, we have the duty to question each other. You know, that way it's a check and balance system. And then we have a duty to accept responsibility for our actions, because if you and I, I question myself and you question it, and then we proceed with that action, you know, then we, we've got to accept the responsibility for, for that action because, you know, of giving that medication. So, well, the medication should you know, be given talking, without that. Well, we've talked about it uh, here before and, and, you know, some of the, the books I've uh, listened to on the road here recently, you know, talking about uh, foreign airlines. You know, at one point in time, the pilot was not to be questioned. And there was actually wrecks that occurred or crashes that occurred where they actually have communications between the second, uh, the, the co-pilot and the navigator. That's like, hey, we're going to crash. But not a one of them was willing to say, hey, we're going to crash and we need to do something or take control. And, you know, after those incidences and those uh, references were found on the recording, they came back and said, Hey, we need to create a situation where these other people have the authority and the respect to say, Hey, I believe we're going to crash and they all have to make the decision together. Um, you know, when we take a look at, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the Boeing, 737 max eight, you know, you know, they, they go back to training, you know, they change something and cut corners on training or as one of the things that came out and all of a sudden they had a couple of crashes that took a large amount of life. This is our equivalent there that we need to make sure that our training is adequate. And then we have our safety systems in place to make sure that people don't get sick or injured. So um, and maybe this is, I know we're probably getting a little bit further into this than we plan on it, but um, also just 
during training, we need to be okay with making mistakes. Um, one of the things I've started doing at the, at the hospitals where I teach at is um, um, when they start going through a mega code, um, I don't stop them from making a mistake. I let them make the mistake and let them continue on. And the patient will either get better, deteriorate, whatever. And um, they'll, they'll look up at me like, is, is this the right dose? I'm like, I, I don't know. I, I, maybe I have no idea. Just, just give it if that's what you want to do. And they've, number one, it does hurt them. They realize very quickly they got something wrong, number two, but they learned a lesson from it. And I feel like in training too often, we're so busy trying to check boxes and just get people through the training that we don't really give them the opportunity to be wrong. And we've done education. We've done everybody a disservice by training people through correct through, through um, the correct action versus training them through the incorrect action. And you can learn in both modalities. So um, the, the, the paramedic who walks in and does a glimmering 100%, does the checkoff, everything, that's the person that they want to look at and like, yay, they're awesome. And the one who like kind of fumbles through it, forgets stuff, gets it wrong, but ultimately ends up getting it right. That's the one they think is an idiot. When really it's like, actually, they're both, they're, they're both equally intelligent. I mean, I feel like the, the one who bumbled through it, but eventually figured it out after they got it wrong, that was probably just their way of getting through it versus bumbling through it, getting it wrong, being like, all right, well, just forget it. We're going to check you off. I'm just saying like, if we're going to be doing the treatment, if we're going to be doing the training and stuff, I think we need to hold ourselves accountable to getting it wrong too and being okay with getting it wrong. Not just with ketamine, but just with any training that we do, we got to stop eating our own and allow ourselves to be wrong, but being in a position where we can correct ourselves. Well, I've, I've got two things on that. One, we're inherently designed to learn through failure. So if you take a look at us as, as infants, right? We start to crawl, we start to, to walk. And what do we do? We fall, we fall, we fall. And we're finding ways not to do something. Uh, whereas if you've got somebody that's always got somebody holding them up, they actually take longer to walk on their own. Like we learn through that process of failure uh, and, you know, I, I take a look at uh, uh, the the invention of the light bulb. He's like, I had a hundred, I didn't fail. I just figure out a hundred different ways not to make a light bulb. Uh, so we, we are designed to learn through failure. And I think that is optimum. But I also think, you know, when, when it takes, when I, when I take a look, I, I remember going back through my paramedic program and ultimately for the first two semesters, it didn't matter. Everybody died. You could have the perfect care and they're going to die. Uh, you know, and for some reason, you know, they stub their big toe and next thing you know, they're, mm. and, you know, you've created some RMT phenomenon and you're never going to get them back. And it's like, how, how, how did this happen? So this is where we got to get varied in that, uh, you know, taking that uh, that you're talking about, Eric, and putting them in situations that one may be completely benign and let them go and say, hey, by the way, the fact that you just administered ketamine, your patient's now in cardiac arrest, respiratory arrest and going into cardiac arrest. And let them work through that. And it's like, hey, all right. So in our debrief, you now say, hey, you're, you know, ketamine may have been the right route, but if you take a look, the patient was pretty innocuous. There was nothing 
reported. You just talked your way into it because you thought we were going to put him down the the uh, the they were going to die or escalate. Uh, I remember both my ACLS and PALS Megaco. The very first time I did it, the first medication I gave, I gave the right dose for the right medication and called it the wrong thing. And I started going. And as I was going to give the next medication, I went back and said, hey, that first medication was the wrong thing. I'm, uh, you know, I know I failed. And guess what? I learned from it. Never gave the wrong thing in the field. In fact, it stopped a physician from giving the wrong medication for a patient because of experiences like that. And I think that's where we win because we, again, are designed to learn through that failure. Well, we have gone uh, quite a bit about ketamine tonight, uh, getting into not only various cases, but getting into ketamine specifically just in, in training, uh, but uh, overall our assessment and, and management of, of patients uh, that, that may be candidates for therapeutic doses of ketamine. So before we get out of here tonight, let's go ahead and get our final thoughts. We'll start, uh, since Bradley brought us this topic, we'll give you the chance to give us our first final thought. So uh, final thought, I'm, I, I'll run back through uh, the training thing again. First thing is, is you know, review your protocols. Make sure all your personnel review the protocols. Train everybody. Um, and then once you train everybody, document the completion of that training. Um, and then review the cases as they, as they come up. And then stay vigilant as a field provider. Uh, and I can't say that enough because you know, don't allow yourself to become complacent uh, because complacency kills. That, that, that says it all right there, but uh, we're going to see what Eric has to add to it. Um, similar along the lines, the only thing I would say is don't outsource your competency and skill set. Uh, make sure you own it yourself um, and ask, ask the physicians that you work with in the ERA, what kind of patients do you give ketamine to? You might be interested uh, if you start surveying a bunch of different physicians, what they would say. Um, now that I work with uh, pediatricians on a regular basis on the side, um, I've learned that they give different medications and do different things. Um, we could have the, they could have the exact same patient but they're going to have a completely different um, idea of what they want to do for the patient. Um, and it's, and it's, and it's interesting. So, I mean, yes, obviously go off of your protocol, but, you know, ask, ask the, they've seen it. Um, you know, you know, we can't be an us versus them all the time where uh, we're paramedics. They don't know our world. Yeah. But we don't know theirs either. And they've been exposed to a lot more. They have a lot more resources. We should use that to our ability. Absolutely love that. Don't outsource your competency. It's, uh, I, I like that. So, and I'm just going to say something we, we consistently say, you know, use those good assessment skills. Uh, before we are administering everything, we've got a good assessment. And, uh, you know, there, there are times where the patient is in need of therapeutics before, but even that, you know, we can do our, lack of a better term right now, our windshield surveys. We walk in, we figure it out. 
just by just by interacting from from point one. So make sure to complete that assessment first. So as we finish up tonight, we want to just reiterate and thank our podcast partner, the Journal of Emergency Medical Services. Uh, make sure to go to the EMS Today podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review on Google, Spotify, and Apple. And that's where you will find us typically every week, other than when we when we take a week off. Also, don't forget to go by our website, emshandoff.com, and find us on our new Facebook group. And then lastly, our most recent edition, we're going to be starting to release our own episodes uh, via audio. Uh, and you will be able to find those as well. We're going to start back at episode number one, which is now posted live. And you can find the EMS handoff on all of your favorite podcast uh, sources. We are currently on Apple, Google, and Spotify as well. And we are expanding those out as we speak. But now every week we're going to be releasing that uh, original episode outside of the, the EMS Today podcast as well. So you can go back and find all of our great episodes. So if you're a new follower uh, those are out there as well. Uh, those Facebook groups are our most active, so make sure and hop on over there. And don't forget to stop by the Pursuit Company and find our EMS handoff line of merchandise. At thepursuitco.com, you're going to sh- uh, click on shop and you'll scroll down and you'll find all of our awesome apparel. So for my co-host, Dave McCullough and Bradley Dean, this is David. Take care, stay safe, and always remember the, the value of your EMS handoff.